just making sure you're patient, you're purposeful, and you're passionate about what it is you're doing. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 72, and today's guest is Vijay Talwar. Vijay shares his story of coming to the U.S. from India and crafting a career that took him through accounting, audit, and tax roles, consulting at Bain, and then as president of digital at Foot Locker. He speaks about just how important his graduate degree was and how it prepared him for the senior roles that he's had. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Vijay Talwar. Vijay is an accomplished multinational business leader with over 25 years of broad industry experience in consumer products, online, sports, and retail sectors, encompassing both emerging and premium brands. As part of his background, he's worked for brands such as Nike, Foot Locker, and Blue Nile. Vijay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, you know, I like to start the show uh, giving the uh, the audience some perspective of of the guest, uh, you know, kind of your uh, early life, your upbringing, and 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 also with a a little bit of a slant of you know, was there something in your early childhood or in your you know early adult life that kind of gave rise to you know the career that you've developed for yourself, the industries that you've been in. Absolutely. Actually, the one thing I will tell you is that uh, when I was uh, in high school, my dad had a subscription and high school in India. So it's important to know because otherwise it's uh, it, it seems like a common uh, story. But uh, he had a subscription to both Time magazine and Fortune magazine. And so throughout my high school years, I would read both those magazines sort of from end to end. And I'll never forget that one of the uh, one of the times we, they did one of the Fortune 500 surveys and things like that ranked the companies, the biggest companies in the world, I read about what the Fortune 500 CEOs had in common. And it turns out what they had in common at that time, which uh, was that they were mostly male, mostly white, mostly tall, and they had an MBA from one of the top five business schools. And what is interesting about it, there's certain things in it I couldn't change, which sometimes is good because I happen to be tall for, for an Indian actually fairly, so that was a good thing can change the color of my skin, happened to be the right gender in this case. But the one thing I thought was actually doable and something I could make a goal or uh, an ambition or a goal was getting my MBA from a you know prestigious college in the US. So as a young kid, I think I was probably at the time between around 16 or 17 years old, I made it sort of my mission in life to kind of get an MBA, uh, getting a US MBA uh, was kind of one of the things I wanted to do. I had no idea how, I had no money, I had no I think, relatively speaking, mediocre skills as far as my own you know, self-assessment in those days. Uh, but I was determined that that's what I was going to do. So that that's sort of uh, one big part of it. The other big part of it is once I did make it to the U.S., I landed in a small little town called Finlay, Ohio. And uh, in that town, I you know, it was I started working for the professor, for a professor 
who was actually the economics and marketing professor because that's what I wanted to major. And I remember sitting down with him one day and uh, Professor Gupta, who was also from India, said to me, hey, you are an immigrant. You need to make sure you get a degree where you can be employed and you need to be. And the reality is from a small university like ours, you're much more likely to get employed if you have an accounting degree versus a marketing degree. And so even though I had sort of no real love for accounting at that point in time, I proceeded to not just get my undergraduate degree in accounting, but also then sat for my CPA and my CMA exam and even got my master's degree in accounting because there was a new five-year requirement that was going to kick in. And so just for uh, uh, from a you know, safety net perspective, I ended up getting my master's in accounting as well. So uh, my entire sort of plus-based uh, career as an accountant was, uh, you know, based more on sort of being conservative as a foreigner in this country and making sure that I could land a job and uh, add value right, you know, from day one of graduation. It's funny, the uh, the accounting uh, background, that's what I have as well. Although I spent have spent almost all of my career in marketing, uh, you were at uh, Deloitte and, and Touche. Were you on the uh, audit side or consulting or tax or? I actually did. Uh, both the audit side and the tax side. So actually, it would be every year I would work from January to you know mid February in audit, and from February fifteenth to April fifteenth in tax, and I'd go back to audit and then come back for the tax deadline. So I was the most utilized person in the office, like the entire three busy seasons that I was there. So you you were at uh, Deloitte, and then you know one of the things you know so much so interesting about your career is the the size and the uh, the notoriety that you know your your uh, brands have had. You know, I mentioned Nike and, and Foot Locker, uh, but right after Deloitte, I, I guess you were at Kellogg's. I did. I went. I wanted to be again. I my original dream was to be a marketing guy, and so I knew I wanted to get my MBA in marketing. I wanted to kind of do so. Kellogg's offered me an opportunity in the internal audit department. And it was kind of a fun job. I would go all around the world. And actually, a big part of what I was doing was auditing uh, advertising agencies. And, uh, you know, some of that was a big part of the time was in New York. Uh, but uh, in Chicago and New York, so it was Leo Burnett and J. Walter Thompson. But I would then go and audit their offices in different countries as well. And so it was, uh, it was a really fun job. It started getting me much closer to, you know, the marketing side of things and uh, spending a lot of time even internally with the folks at Kellogg's who worked in marketing, but coming at it more from a numbers perspective. Right, that's interesting. You know, you were saying internal audit. I figured you were doing physical inventories at various times, and you know, counting the frosted flakes. You know, <laughs> yeah. well, we did have a factory that burnt down or had some fire in India. It had just started, and so I remember going there for what you are describing a little bit. But most of it was actually a lot more fun because uh, clearly the marketing guys at Kellogg's were a lot more fun than the. Finance and accounting people. And and so you parlayed that into time at Bain. And, you know, just in in looking at your LinkedIn profile and and doing a little bit of background, um, you know, one of the things that you were working on at Bain was the Starbucks brand. Uh, Maybe explain one of the challenges or some of the challenges that you faced there. Yeah, so it was interesting. I worked for Bain for about a year in Chicago, and then my wife got transferred for her job to San Francisco. So I requested an internal transfer, made it to San Francisco. And the day I landed, they said to me, hey, we're going to put you on the Starbucks account, which was which meant that every Monday morning I would fly to Seattle and every Thursday uh, evening or you know Friday, I would fly back to San Francisco. 
And so uh, I'd never been to Seattle before, you know, so uh, it was, a, it was a, a really, really fun engagement. And I, let me explain why. What happened was Starbucks was a company of creative people, right? Bain is a company of analytics, you know, analytically driven, data driven kind of people, uh, you know, uh, talent. And what was interesting was it was the perfect sort of merger that I've, I have seen of sort, of sort of the left brain and the right brain, so to speak. So we got there and the idea at Starbucks was Starbucks had more architects on staff than any architectural firm in the Seattle area, right? Because every single store was designed from scratch almost. Every store had unique furniture, unique tile versus wood versus, so unique flooring, unique you know, uh, decorations, unique cabinetry, unique, even to the point that even no two bathrooms looked alike, right? So, so it was interesting. So one of the things that we did the analysis on, we started out doing a lot of work on the uh, procurement side of things, reducing the cost of some of the items, including, you know, things that go into the store, like cabinetry and furniture and that kind of thing. But, you know, so we got them to at least agree to standardizing, you know, the bathrooms to start with. Got them to the point where I said, okay, we'll, we'll pick from three types of flooring rather than 25 types of flooring. Pick from, you know, four or five different types of tables and chairs and sofas and other sort of furniture and things like that. And what that did, it just immediately started making everything much more uh, profitable, right? And I think the other thing that we did that Bain, at Bain was a huge project around what we call product line profitability. So that was also the time where Starbucks, I don't know if you remember this time, they were selling you everything possible under the sun under the guise of retail. So you'd sell magic eight balls, they'd sell you a t-shirt that said Chicago and Chicago and San Francisco and San Francisco. Uh, and so, you know, none of those products were actually nearly as profitable as the coffee. There was a head of marketing at that time who really wanted to get into donuts. He, like, he thought that, you know, Krispy Kreme was growing and he wanted to provide donuts and Starbucks stores and, and, you know, again, we looked at the margin on food and it was a lot less than the margin on hot beverages. So we actually made them cut out a bunch of the retail, built an entire story around the fact that they were just going to get rid of, you know, 5% of their revenue, which if you know in the retail world, the entire valuation is based on same store sales. And initially that was kind of a shock, but as they kind of, you know, uh, pivoted on that, they basically assured Wall Street while the revenue goes down, the profits would actually go up significantly. And that's exactly what happened. So it was an amazing experience. And actually, the only reason I ended up leaving Bain was because Starbucks, I was so, uh, so much a part of their culture. And so, you know, after working there for a year and a half, two years, that uh, the folks at Starbucks came to me and said, hey, would you like to join us at Starbucks? And that's what kind of got me thinking about what I want to do next. And I love the people, love the culture. But as you know, it's not a very common thing to go from being a consultant inside an organization to joining an organization. So there were some hoops I needed to jump through to kind of uh, <laughs> to make that happen. And while I was doing that, I ended up uh, getting an offer from Nike uh, because a friend had just left Bain and gone to Nike and he had heard that I was thinking about joining Starbucks and said, hey, well, why don't you come and join Nike? And so I had two really, really amazing companies to pick from. So. You know, it's so interesting. You you talked about it, and and I think so many brands, whether they're public or private, have a terrible time walking away from sales, even if they know either 
uh, for sure that it's not profitable, or even if they have an intuition that it's not profitable. Um, they, we work so hard to get sales, but you know, especially in the way that I think the markets are today and the economy is today, you'll see more and more businesses kind of right-sizing the the mix of what they are selling for profitability. So you were right on the on the cusp of that. That's great. Uh, let's talk about uh, Nike for a bit, and there's so much we could talk about, but let's focus perhaps on the fact that Nike is a multi-channel business selling, you know, directly to the consumer online in stores, uh, obviously selling wholesale in the role that you were in there. Um, and I think you had some international components of that role. How did you kind of think about channel conflict within the business? So remember that when I was at Nike, Nike was probably 90 to 95% a wholesale business, at least 90 plus percent a wholesale business, and maybe 10% a retail business. And most of that 10% was the big Nike town kind of flagship type stores. So they had 10 to 20 stores that were huge stores that was really more about showing others what is possible. Plus at the other end of the spectrum, there were a lot of outlet stores and that was very, very much a growing part of the business, very profitable. Like there was always a push. I remember making a presentation to the uh, CEO or the president of North America about, we had two stores at the time called Nike Goddess stores. Um, and the idea was to take that Nike Goddess and change it to Nike Women's and uh, expand it to 75 stores. And we kind of put the entire presentation together to talk about the fact that there isn't a good retailer out there in the U.S. specifically where women can feel comfortable shopping and can get a really broad assortment of Nike products. And so I remember kind of taking this presentation first to the head of uh, the U.S. business and then kind of globally to getting that approved as part of their strategic plan to roll it out across the country and, you know, 75 stores over three years kind of thing. In the meantime, I moved to Europe, as you pointed out, uh, to help uh, run the Central Europe, Middle East, and Africa business in Europe. And so I, I never got to see the implementation of that, but those were the early years when they were just trying to uh, get into the retail side of things. So this is also pre-Nike, I mean, NikeID.com had just launched, which is all about customization of the sneakers and of apparel. In fact, uh, the apparel piece happened uh, while I was still a part of the apparel division, uh, sort of uh, the GM of the first Nike ID apparel GM sort of reported into me. So it was really fun to kind of see that happen. But if you look at what Nike was trying to do in those days, it was really differentiate. So only go into retail where it was absolutely necessary, right? So it was super high end with Nike towns because nobody was building those flagship stores, you know, the outlet stores, because it made a lot of sense. And it, it only made sense for Nike to do it because they had, you know, the first cost margin on the product. The ID piece of it, because again, it's about linking the supply chain all the way through to the customer, right? And you need to have that sort of end-to-end -end interaction. And so they were only doing, an, and the women's piece example I gave you. So all four of those are examples of when there was a big gap or a big hole in Nike's portfolio because the, the retailers were not filling that need, right? And so that's how they were thinking of in those days. Now, as I sort of ended up on the other side of the equation, working at Foot Locker, it's become a much more of a conscious decision to say we want to control our own destiny and we want to control our own brand and we want to control that experience. And therefore, we believe, and quite honestly, so much of that sales comes from online that it helps them scale at a much, much faster rate. 
Yeah, you know, the the whole the ability, I think you hit on this, the ability to tell the story differently or the way you want to control it, you know, when you're a wholesaler, you lose that uh, ability to conduct the story. I spent uh, a long time, seven years at Steve Madden uh, running the e-commerce business there. And, you know, when I was there, you know, that was a wholesale company and slowly they built out stores and, and, and an e-commerce, thriving e-commerce business. And, you know, a lot of it was so they could better control the story. Uh, interesting. Absolutely. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. We've talked about, you know, so many of the great brands that you've been part of, and we'll come back to Foot Locker in a second, but you spent a few years in a not-for-profit organization, which, you know, is not a normal, um, you know, progression for somebody that was on the path uh, that you were on. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I mean, the truth is I took my family to India because I was going to work on a luxury retail startup in India. It happened to be 2008, and the whole world was falling apart, and this was a joint venture between a a British company and one of the largest companies in India. And so six or nine months later, the whole thing sort of fell apart. And I found myself in India and unemployed, trying to figure out what is it that I want to do next. Coincidentally, you know, my wife only had one requirement of me. And she said, I don't, after that experience, she didn't want me to work for an Indian conglomerate for whatever reason. And she really said that, hey, if you can, it would be really good if we can stay in India and work and, you know, live here and work here but work for an American company so that eventually we have roots back to the U.S. And I was in Bangalore, India, and at the time there were lots of companies like Microsoft and Accenture and Dell and others who were very, very big. All the tech tech companies that just started their, you know, uh, scaling up in India and had you know, lots of opportunities. But I really started to think a little lot about what it is I want to do. I, I'll save the details for now, but I went back and read a business school paper that I wrote in one of my leadership classes. And it actually talked about how in my third year journey, I was going to do consulting for 10 years, be at a big brand for 10 years, and then do not-for-profit work for 10 years. That was what I thought I was going to do when I was 26 years old or something like that. So I went back and read that, you know, almost 10 years later and realized that I'd already, you know, gotten to the point where I'd done the first two. So why not take a plunge into the world of not-for-profit? And so I just started you know, talking and networking and connecting with the Gates Foundation, the, you know, Kellogg Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, mostly U.S.-based foundations. And most of those ended up responding positively from, to me. And I had a really unique opportunity to join the William J. Clinton Foundation at the time. And they did work mostly with children who either suffered from HIV AIDS, so it was all about identifying those children and then giving them the drugs that they need to stay alive not just once or twice, but for the rest of their lives, right? And also we realized that a lot of those children were actually not, before they can, before the HIV was killing them, the lack of nutrition was killing them. So we also started up a separate program around malnutrition, and that was the second part of it. And then the third piece was completely different, a different part of the foundation, but did a lot of work on climate change. So taking sort of, you know, buildings in, in Bombay and Delhi and, and essentially retrofitting those buildings 
so that they can reduce their carbon footprint. So two areas of you know healthcare and climate change, I had literally zero experience in, right? But I think I think of that job as the most meaningful job I've ever had, not just in terms of giving back, but also in terms of building my confidence. You know, going into this job, I was almost, you know, I'd sit around a table where there was somebody from UNICEF, somebody from the Gates Foundation, somebody from, you know, the Family Health International, so all these different not-for-profits, and they were mostly PhDs, doc, medical doctors, all of the folks, you know, people who had, you know, worked in social services, social sciences, and then it was me. What I found was that what I brought to the table was a completely different perspective. And sometimes that can be really, really valuable. And so over time, it helped me build my confidence that, you know, just listening to others and being able to share my ideas, I didn't have the biases that many of them had because they'd grown up in that industry for 10, 15, 20 years. So it just worked out really well for, you know, for me. And that actually gave me the confidence for the moves that I made after that date, because a lot of times I've gotten into an industry, I've gotten into a job, I don't have as much depth as I probably should, but it has, you know, uh, worked out pretty well. So that's a nice uh, story. You, you you reference, you know, having read that uh, document that you wrote in a leadership course. Uh, as you think about the roles that you've been in, and you've uh, obviously uh, been required to develop talent uh, and display your own leadership to others, is there some kind of a secret sauce uh, that, you, that you kind of uh, think about in you know, with respect to leadership and bringing talent? So there's two parts to it. I work for organizations that are like Nike that are so attractive that the talent just keeps coming in. You, your job is to figure out which of, you know, 3%, 5%, 10% of the talent you're going to hire, which is a nice problem to have. I've also had the opposite happen to me when I was at the Clinton Foundation, which is that we were really out of money. I had to lay off 25% of the workforce in the first week when I took out that job. But believe it or not, 80% of those people continue to work for me for free. And in the meantime, I went out and recruited 22 people from universities in the US and UK, really prestigious universities, you know, students either working for me for anywhere for three months, six months to 12 months, that would essentially fly to India, stay in India for that 12 month period, and work for free, with just a, you know, a simple two economy class one way tickets at the beginning of the, you know, for the hiring date and the at the end of the tenure, so to speak. Very different from a recruiting standpoint, but I was able to kind of cope with both and adjust, I guess, my style to both. But it, what didn't change during that time is what I believe is the easiest way to kind of manage and understand people is, you know, we tend to have a lot of performance review forms and development plans and those kind of things. And really, I tend to spend a lot of my time with my teams, just sitting down, asking them, you know, simple questions about where do they see themselves five years from now? And not just a question, it's not a, it's not an interview type question and, you know, not, there's no trick and there's no right answer. It's more about trying to figure out how can I help them get there, right? And so when I know more about what my team members and my, you know, my teams want to do personally, like, you know, the other thing I talk a lot about is passion, right? I try to find out what it is that they do on their free time. Like, you know, Nike was filled with athletes, Footlockers filled with people who love sneakers and are constantly upgrading and buying new sneakers, even though most of them will be told that they have no space at home you know, to keep. That was always the biggest joke is that people would you know, hide sneakers at work because they would 
you know, told by their spouse, respective spouses, men or women, to you can't bring another pair of sneakers home, right? So, uh, <clears throat> but it's but that's what they love and that's what they do. So, understanding what people are passionate about and trying to line it up with what they do, you know, what they're doing for a living, is kind of that. That's something I realize is really important, at least to to talk to them, acknowledge them. You can't always make it happen, right? A lot of people do very different things Monday to Friday in their job and do very, very different things on Saturday and Sunday. But what I talk about when they talk about purpose and passion is really about what if you what if those two things could overlap? What would your life be like? And I, I mean, my, my best example still goes all the way back to my Nike days where I had a financial analyst who had come from investment banking, was working in the global apparel team and finance as an analyst. And I started having these conversations with her and she started to open up. And it turns out her passion really was around alternative medicine. She wanted to become an acupuncturist. She wanted to become, you know, you know, all of those, you know, sort of things. And she when she quit her job, went, got her qualifications, and she's really proud of what she's done, you know, over the last 10, 15 years now. That's uh, great points, uh, getting at uh, really understanding who you're, uh, the people are that you're working with. I love it. Uh, let's talk about uh, Foot Locker. You, you mentioned it. Uh, you start there in 2016. So, you know, kind of thinking about where uh, retail and online was then versus where, you know, seven years later, where we are, you know, now. Uh, your role there was as president. What was when you were brought in? What was your you know? What were the one or two things that you know you kind of saw that you you needed to react and respond to? Uh, maybe what your charges were from you know uh, the board. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, what most people don't realize is that Foot Locker owns an entire portfolio of brands, retail brands. So it owns most people know Foot Locker, Lady Foot Locker, Kids Foot Locker, which all had their own websites. I was the president of the digital side of things. So all the websites is what I was kind of uh, running the online business. In addition to those three brands, they own Champ Sports, they own a brand called Foot Action, a women's brand called 602. And actually the biggest brand in the portfolio was not footlocker.com, but it was a company called eSpay.com. And three years in a row, eSpay was going backwards. And so we were brought in uh, to essentially turn that business around. So, you know, making sure that the rest of the portfolio continued to grow but we also turned around the East Bay business, which was the only performance side of the business. So they also did baseball cleats, football cleats, basketball performance shoes, those kind of things that was in addition to what Foot Locker and Champ Sports and other brands sold as well. So um, so that was probably the biggest ask. And uh, it was fundamental to, I, I will tell you, I've never been so wrong in my hypothesis ever before in my life. So I walked in there and I knew they spent you know tens of millions of dollars on creating a catalog. I don't know if you've ever seen the East Bay catalog, but every... I was a customer for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and that's how most people talk about it. I mean, many athletes have come back and you know wanted to be on the cover of it because they talked about how much they loved the magazine when they were in high school, right? And it, for them, it was more of a magazine than a catalog, right? They read through it. They wanted to see what's going to give them a competitive advantage, and they would save up a lot of money to buy the most, you know, the, the best product that suits them. The reality uh, is that... I thought in the digital age, for sure, again, you're saying 2016, 2017, I thought the, the easiest part of the strategy is going to be just cut the expense, the, the spend on catalog, invest that money in online, and the business is going to grow like crazy. And as I started looking at the numbers, it turns out that everybody had the same idea I did. Five years ago, somebody had come from Coca-Cola and tried the same thing. Someone else had come 
some of the marketing expert had come in and kind of tried this. So that's and those they hadn't it hadn't worked. So I started digging more and more into the numbers, and it turned out that Eastbay had a conversion rate that was three times higher than the conversion rate of Footlocker or Champ Sports, or which couldn't be explained by anything other than the catalog. So I did the exact opposite of what what I thought I was going to do in my first six months for the next year and a half or so. Ended up doubling down on catalog, actually increasing the spend, but also becoming much more surgical about where we were sending the catalog. The other problem with Eastbay was that we were sending it to a household. Usually there would be a you know high school athlete in that household, but a high school athlete's you know only there for four years. And they graduate and they go away to college. And typically, when you know amateur athletes go away to college, they stop spending money on athletic products and and they start spending money on beer and other lifestyle <laughs> things that you know uh, we we all do that, right? So, so I think the problem is we're still sending the catalogs to their parents at home. So, starting to just cut off the long tail, becoming much more surgical, using these stores. So we started to distribute the catalog at Champ Sports stores, for example. You know, so did a lot of unique things, but we were able to see the growth that we needed to see in the East Bay brand. And that was the first time we were actually able to grow that brand in a four or five year period. It resonated. The brand started doing better with our consumers. It you know, started ranking in other. What's fascinating about that group is that's a very, very influential group. You know, high school athletes, they tend to set the tone in a given high school and then High school aged, you know, so if you think about 16 to 20 year olds, they tend to tend to uh, set the tone for the whole country. You know what I mean? In terms of what's, you know, uh, being key influencers in terms of, you know, what's trending positively. And so it was, uh, it was really, really powerful. And, you, you know, obviously there was, this was backed up by social, this was backed up by digital, this was backed up by you know, doing a lot of the other things that, that also mattered. But, but, you know, the simple formula would have been, Focus just on the digital, cut the catalog, and the business should, you know, grow. And and especially now, when I look back at it, it, it makes so much more sense because the cost of acquiring customer online has probably doubled or quadrupled even since 2016. Uh, for sure. One, sorry, one of the questions I was going to ask you, you know, has to do with marketing costs and you know the the challenges. So you faced it at Footlocker, and and you know when the web you know, started to become more prominent in the early 2000s. I worked for a number of businesses that were catalog centric. And, you know, the folks that, you know, came up through that industry, you know, they immediately, you know, were talking about, you know, the death of the catalog. And I never really felt um, that that was the case. I felt that they were going to work, you know, hand in hand. And no question, we've seen a reduction, you know, over the years in the amount of books and, and paper that's out there. But so many of these businesses that have been developed over the last 10 years that were native web businesses have evolved and have used paper, you know, as part of their marketing uh, mix. But as you think about, you know, marketing, how do, how do you in your businesses help the teams understand the next best place to spend a marketing dollar? Ultimately, it's all about the data, right? So you analyze the data, you look at the consumers, you look at the, you know, you look at the lifetime value of the consumer, and you look at the cost of acquisition. So what's happened with, you know, a lot of the bigger platforms like Google and Instagram and, and now even the TikTok, if the costs have been rising significantly, right? So the ROI actually goes down over time. You might still be getting customers in, but at a much more expensive rate, right? So say, so what happens is that being authentic and true to yourself is probably a big part of it. 
right? And I think having that patience, because it really, when it, you know, people like to use the word lifetime value, but then they change their marketing tactics every six to nine months, right? And that doesn't work very well either. So, so if you're going to, you know, patience to me is another big part of this whole story. So if you think about, it's important A, to be authentic, right? And that authenticity comes from being true to yourself. And once you believe in that, it's truly about being patient and, and letting it play out. Not about, you know, I, I see too many times that you try something new, it works for a little while, and you double down all your efforts on that on that new channel or that new spend. And then all of a sudden, it sort of backfires after six months, 12 months, 18 months, either because the costs have gone high or everyone else has figured it out. And then now you have nowhere to go. Right. So I, so for me, for example, like I'm a huge believer in omni-channel. Right. And I gave the catalog versus online example earlier. So I won't repeat that. But if you think about stores, that's a big part of it. Like everybody thought with COVID, everyone has moved online and they're never going to move back to the stores. Right. But in, again, in retrospect, you can easily see that people want also there's a social element to the stores. Right. People meet up and people say, hey, let's meet at the mall. Let's meet at a store. Let's look at what's new. They line up outside. There's a there's a drop of a certain sneaker you know, uh, and wait during the hours to make sure that they get that sneaker, you know, at that particular store, right? So so the thing is, you have to be able to use all the different channels, whether it's the, you know, we talked about catalog, we talked about sort of digital, we talked about sort of, you know, the store side of things. And it could be, it could be anything. Like, I mean, at Foot Locker, we had quite a bit of success taking trucks and, uh, you know, uh, vans and things like that and creating mobile sort of retail experiences. Right, because you know LeBron's first game at the Staples Center, and it almost created a virtual store. You know that that was literally not there two days before. Came on the back of a you know uh, truck, and then was kind of pulled apart and made a beautiful presentation. So those are the kind of things I think you have to do. You have to do something that's unexpected, but I do think it has to be authentic. Great stuff. You've had an amazing career, great brands, and uh, you've obviously been very thoughtful about the things that you've done and how you've progressed your career. So uh, we're coming down to the end of the show. I do this uh, two-minute drill, seven questions, one-word answer, uh, and then we'll let you get back to your uh, activities for the day. How's that? You know, it's very difficult to have one-word answers. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Especially for most executives. All of these shows, VJ, the most difficult thing is for the folks to use one word answers. Even after we have this uh, back and forth that it's, you know, try to stick to one word answer, everybody gives me uh, lots of conversation. But anyway, we're all good. <laughs> all right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Nike. Still still sort of very much a uh, soft spot for them. Favorite app on your phone? It sounds crazy, but my biggest utility app is Uber. Okay, there you go. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? A Lululemon. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Just more athletic in general. I think it's just, you know, it, and, and I've done three marathons in my life. So it's not like I, I haven't done anything, but it's just athletics is something I have to work much harder at than studying, I guess. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? It's called the Kiran Anjali Project. It's uh, one that my wife and I are very, very involved with. We started a school in Bangalore, India, and then connected to a not-for-profit here in Seattle. So actually, I actually have two. So if you don't mind, I'll go two on this one. The other one is an organization called Splash. I served as the chairman of Splash for five years. 
and they provide clean water to children in Africa and Asia. And it's the same water filtration systems that you see in McDonald's. The founder basically buys those cheaply from the manufacturer, takes it to orphanages, in, started in Kathmandu in Nepal, and just installs those uh, water treatment sort of units into in the orphanages, hospitals, schools, entirely focused on children and clean water. So between, and then the other one, Kirananjali Project, is all about educating children from the ages of three to six and giving them a foundation in English, because in many countries in Asia, if you can speak English, that's your ticket out of poverty. If you had one superpower, what would it be? <laughs> I don't know if it makes any sense at all, but at my age, sleeping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Me too. Uh, other yeah. than family, what's your most prized possession? My friends. I, I, you know, I went to boarding school very early in my life and I've kind of stayed in touch. I have friends that I've been in touch with for, you know, four and five decades now. And uh, they're probably my, after my family, my most prized possession. Very nice. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, where can people reach out to you on social media if they'd like to connect? I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn all the time. I, some of the other ones are there, but I don't, I don't participate as much. Uh, actively but yeah but linkedin is probably the best one okay well great well look uh best of luck uh to you and your family in uh your next venture and uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing what you're going to be doing absolutely thank you mark really appreciate the time i've had a lot of time to think about things so for me the, the my final parting words would be you know getting people to focus on purpose that purpose should be driven by their passion and that passion and purpose requires an equal dose of patience. So just making sure you're patient, you're purposeful, and you're passionate about what it is you're doing. That's sort of what I've, in my downtown at least, is what I've been kind of focused on. And then hoping that what I do next will be very well aligned with that. That's very nice. Uh, every show needs a soundbite. So that's a great soundbite for this, uh, this show. So thanks again for the time. It was really nice of you to do this with me. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Vijay Talwar for coming in the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, the lessons you can learn starting a career in accounting cannot be understated. Vijay and I shared that similar background. There's no better way to learn a business than through the P&L, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. Of course, accounting is not for everyone, but even if that's not your core competency, having a working knowledge of the financial aspects of your business is critical to your development. Number two, you're in business to make money, and while sales matter, profits in most cases is what you measure for success. VJ's story about Starbucks and their efforts to sell products beyond hot beverages and some basic food points to the need to sell what makes money. Starbucks eventually stopped selling retail items that were taking up space in the stores and not driving profits. It's not always easy to walk away from the top line, but focus on what drives profitability within your business. And number three, you do not need to have experience in every job that you take. Stretch yourself. Sure, it's easier to jump into a new role when you've had some history in the work that you'll be expected to do. But if you're resourceful and curious and have a good thought process, you can broaden the roles that you're qualified for. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. 
Until next time, the devil is in the details. 